Over Christmas, I got a glimpse of a film that I watched a long time ago, and it gave me a taste to watch it again. The children were watching Kevin Costner in um, Dances with Wolves. It's a great story about an army lieutenant in the American frontiers who um, meets the Lakota Indians. Um, One of the young women amongst the tribe, though, looks slightly different. She is called Stands with Fist, and uh, as the story unfolds, it becomes clear that actually she was uh, a Western girl, a European girl, who was kidnapped and taken into uh, the tribe of the Lakota Indians. And initially, she had been absolutely rebellious towards them, hence Stands With Fist was her, her name. But by the time Kevin Costa meets her, she's an Indian. She's Lakota. She speaks... Lakota, and can barely remember her, her English. She's, she knows the customs. She's deeply enmeshed in that culture. She is a new person. A long, deep, emotional attachment has formed between her and the Lakota Indians, and it's transformed her. Or another example of that uh, that you will uh, meet, I think, often is when you meet a a long-married couple. Sometimes they become so so adapted to each other that, um, uh, to be honest, it's it's impossible to imagine them apart. They will still be distinct people, um, uh, still perhaps have distinct opinions on things, but... But there's a way in which their their lives have merged. Judy and I argue over who chose what our kitchen should be like. We remember there being quite significant differences between us when uh, we started discussing it. But we're both absolutely convinced that we chose it. Somehow, the bond of relationship that, uh, that, that we have has... Has, has made our tastes even converge. Uh, when we look at houses these days, we always have exactly the same reaction. I know how Judy will react. It's the same as me. Two people have come together and somehow hardly noticed that they have become a common personality almost. That's a very important couple of observations, I think, for the question that the Apostle Paul is starting to address. How do people change? And that will be the substance of of, uh, what he's talking about from uh, halfway through chapter 6 to halfway through chapter 8. So we're going to come back to it and we're going to look, to be honest, at a few key truths from slightly different angles, um, to start to get a rich and deep understanding of what he's telling us about how human beings change, and specifically how Christians change. Um, Just to remind you, if you haven't uh, been here or you've got a short memory like me, um, uh, Paul's Paul's argument so far in the whole of Romans has... um, 
has been reasonably simple. He has said that his gospel is this. Those who are righteous by faith will live. And in chapters 1 to 4, he's explained what he meant by that phrase, righteous by faith. He says that you get right with God through faith in Jesus. No one can do it through their own good works. All of us need to to, uh, put our trust in Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and seek his forgiveness. That is how you get right with God. That is how people have always got right with God and that is how they always will get right with God. That's what it means to be righteous by faith. But then in Romans 5 to 8, he starts to unpack that um, uh, what it means to live. Those who are righteous by faith will live. What does it mean to live as a Christian? And he, he said, we saw in the second half of Romans chapter 5, he says, in a sense, Jesus has created a whole new humanity. He, uh, we, we were born as descendants of Adam and Eve. In a sense, we were in Adam. We were, we were bound into a whole pattern of behaviours and thinking and so on, which was our culture as human beings, and we couldn't break free from it. Unfortunately, that pattern of behaviour that, that we inherited from Adam was, was full of sin. And we are heading towards the death of God's judgement. And what Jesus did was he comes as a sort of new Adam who becomes the head of a whole new humanity because he died for our sins. He won our forgiveness. And now as we get bound into that new humanity, we find not only that we benefit from the forgiveness that Jesus won for us, but that we start to be transformed because... We are bound into that new humanity. We find not only that we are righteous by faith, but we begin to live because we belong to that new humanity. That was the sort of basic picture that he gave us in the second half of Romans 5. And then he anticipated a question. The question was this. Okay, so, so, so Christ has given you all this wonderful life. That means you can live any way you like does it any, any patterns of behaviour you like and you still belong to this new humanity forgiven, headed up by Christ. And, and Paul says at the beginning of Romans 6, no, absolutely not. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. And he explains um, um, uh, in, in clear but actually quite difficult to grasp concepts that that in a sense we're so bound with, up, up with Christ that just as Christ not only died on the cross for our sins but rose again to eternal life, so we have been bound with, uh, up with Christ and we begin to live his resurrection life. That was the picture he gave us last week. And crucially, says Paul, that means something really important. 6 verse 14. Sin shall no longer be your master. He says, you now, because you belong to this new humanity, sin doesn't need to rule you. That's where we got to last, last week. 
But now, in the second half of 6 and, and onwards, he starts to, to, to explain and unpack how that works. How, how, how does it work then that sin is no longer your master, that you enjoy this new life in Jesus? How, uh, how, do, we, um, how do we start to lead, live, live this um, life that we are promised? He starts in verse 15 by almost reiterating the same question. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. He's, he's still in a sense dealing with that, uh, that, that objection. But now he starts to, um, starts to unpack using some, some um, important images for us why it is the people who belong to Christ can live so that sin is not their master. The first image he uses in uh, uh, 6.15 to the end of the chapter, he says, as Christians, we have a new slave master. Look at um, how he explains it there. Remember, slavery was very much a part of his world, so... It's an image which may not be familiar to us, but it is to him. Verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one who obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Here's the first thing. Obviously, he says, every slave in the Roman Empire knows this. You belong to someone, you obey them. That's, that's the way it works. You belong to slave master sin, you obey slave master sin. You belong to slave master obedience, you obey slave master obedience. But he says, this is really important when you understand what has happened to you. Verse 17, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. God has taken us out of that slave uh, relationship with sin and he's done it uh, and put us into a slave relationship with himself or with Jesus or with obedience. And he's done it by changing our hearts. More of that in a minute. But um, notice that in verse 17. You have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. This, he says, verse 18, is transforming you. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And those two ways of life, the, the, the old way and the new way, have different, as he puts it, benefits or consequences. Verse 21 what benefit did you reap at that time um, from the things you are now ashamed of? These things result in death. That's, that's what happened to you when you belonged to that old slave master, he says. Um, uh, you were heading for death, verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. 
But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's a, here's a few things that he is saying as he, as he develops this, this idea of two slave masters. A couple of things that these, this image gives us. Um, uh, the first is that we move slave masters as a result of a change of heart. That's, uh, I've said it once, I've said it again, and I will apply it in a minute, but it's really, it's really, really important. The shift from one to other to, to the other is because new slave master God steps in and says, I'm not only taking you for myself, I'm, trans- I'm changing your heart around. Human hearts are like um, uh, magnets. Does this work with, with, with magnets? There's going to be a physicist here who's going to tell me off in a minute. Um, uh, that, that you, it, it doesn't quite work, but we can, you can only... We're, we're bipolar. We only point in one or, or one or other direction. There's not an infinite set of, set of gradations. At, at the very core of who we, ha- who we are, our heart is either pointing away from God or it's pointing towards God. Everything else that happens around it, all the visible manifestations, well, there's a thousand million shades of behaviour that, uh, that, that um, uh, happen there. But right at the core of whom we are, there are just two directions that we can point. We either love God or we hate him. That's what, the, uh, that's what the Bible says. And the crucial thing that God does is he changes our hearts so that at the, uh, the core of our being, we begin to love him. And the other thing to, uh, to notice from this analogy is, that, is, is what you might call the economy of these two regimes. The, the, sin, the regime with sin as our slave master, that's all about rights and debt and consequences. The wages of sin is death, he says. There, the, there is a sort of rigid rule about it. We belong to slave master sin, we sin, we get the consequences, and that is death. But then look at the nature of the economy of that other, of that other world that God brings us into. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not that we somehow deserve something. Now here is all about grace. It is about God giving a gift to us. The economy of these two regimes is completely different, says Paul. Well, what does that mean for the way, uh, those things mean for the way that, the way that we live and the way that we do battle with sin? The first thing that I want to, to um, uh, help you to see is that the way that we Christians do battle with sin is through cultivating that love for God that he's created. That is the fundamental thing. It is the other world that has rules and consequences and so on. And if we choose to live in that hard and brutal world, 
we will all, always find, find ourselves dragged down towards death. Paul's going to say that again and again in the next couple of chapters. So I've said it for the first time and then we'll keep saying it. But the world that Jesus has brought you into is a world where he has changed your heart so that now that you love God, if you are a Christian here this evening, and that is the key to your life, it is that that enables us to have victory over sin. Now, that is so important for us because uh, I see a pattern again and again uh, amongst Christians who find themselves defeated and, and locked into sin. And it goes like this. We sin. I think to myself in terms of consequences. I don't realise it's this world that I'm thinking about. And so I think I feel myself to be separate from God. I feel despondent and horrified about, uh, about what I've done and what consequences God might bring on me. And so I don't come to God. I feel a coldness between me and God and I walk out the next day and I'm even more vulnerable to that sin or, any, or many others and it spirals out of control. That, that is so common amongst Christians and it's because we do not understand the economy of the world God has brought us into. That economy means there's something completely different we can do. I sin. Yes, we will still sin. And I realise it. And I think God is a God of grace who loves me. And I can come to him now. Though I have not, ne not necessarily any confidence that I won't be, able to, won't be able to resist sinning, even in five minutes' time, I can come to him now and I can say, please forgive me, Lord, and please help me. And I can be assured, because there is scripture after scripture after scripture which assures me of this, that God immediately forgives me as I come to him in that way. And so I can know and enjoy the love of God even when I sinned five minutes ago and can't be confident I won't sin in five minutes' time. And I can face the next five minutes, the next day, the next week with a deeper degree of confidence and a deeper ability to overcome my sins because I'm loved with an unstoppable love. The gift of God is eternal life. It's not wages. It's not given to us because God owes it to us and somehow then when we sin, he no longer owes it to us. It is his gift to us as sinners. And it is that economy of grace that enables Christians to start breaking free from sin. The first image then, we changed slave masters and we changed economies from debt and consequences to gift and grace. And so we can start to lead a new life. And then he uses another analogy to focus on, on another aspect of it. But he's, he's really sort of rolling this, this, this gem of a truth round in his hands and just giving us another facet of the same thing. He uses the analogy in the first six verses of a new spouse. 
Again, the argument is reasonably clear, at least in its essence. The law teaches us, he says, that um, marriage is redundant in certain circumstances. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Paul's addressing people who are saying effectively, effectively, Paul, the law is an unbreakable thing. You are bound to the law. Jews, Jews of Paul's day in particular would have, would, would have believed that. And he's saying, well, well, examine the law. Yes, it's true. It's an unbreakable thing, say the law of marriage, unless a death has occurred. And then, in marriage, a woman is free to remarry. Well then, he says, a death has occurred, verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit from God. He's, he's reminding them of that, that picture that he's used to being bound with Christ. And since Christ died and rose again, so in a sense we who are in Christ, who are bound up with Christ, have died and are beginning now to lead resurrection life a new life beyond death. And again he's saying, in, uh, uh, using now this analogy of, of, of marriage and the law, again he's saying, so the old way of things working no longer pertains. Because you're in a new economy, a new regime. You have a new spouse. You were bound at one point to your old marital partner, Flesh, verse 5. When we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. That was what was the case before. But now you're married to a new spouse. Verse 6. Now by dying to what's once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not the old way of the written code. There is a new way to live. Remember, the new way to live that he described before was gift and grace. The new way to live that he's describing now is the same one, but he's using a different... Uh, 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 he's describing a different aspect of it. It is the new way of the Spirit. Written codes will not make you good. They'll make you like... Um, uh, uh, Sheldon in the Big Bang Theory. You'll know absolutely everything but not be in control of yourself at all. That's what written codes are like. What makes you good is the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit does is he enables you to love God. He promotes that love in your hearts. He grows that love. The Spirit is absolutely central. 
in, uh, for our transformation. And the Spirit is given to every single believer. If God, you know that God has changed your heart from, from one polarity to the other. From, from uh, hating God to loving God. If you know that's happened, then you have the Spirit of God in your heart. And he will cultivate and grow that love for you and you will find yourself changed. Little stands with fist. She came into a new people. She came to love those new people. And she became conformed in a beautiful way to those people. And married couples, through the long uh, years of loving one another and interacting with one another, they become shaped and conformed by each other. That is how human hearts change. That is how Christians change. You are married to Jesus. Enjoy loving him. You have been brought in to a new people. Yes, as a slave, but as a slave who loves being there because your heart has been changed and you will be conformed to the likeness of Christ. How do we change? Well, that's Paul's first answer. He'll tell us more next week.